I think I'm having an art attack. All right, how's everybody doing? All right, one more time. How's everybody doing? All right, welcome to the very first uh, podcast of Art Attack Live. Who's excited? Nice, nice. Well, I'm glad you could join us tonight. Um, well, here we go. We're going to introduce our first host, Lizzie Dastin. Thank you. So excited that you guys came. This is really special. And I think only half of you are related to me. So it's really awesome. Thank you for the other half. <laughs> All right. And then we have Justin Bua. One, two, one, two. Thank you, guys. All right. We've done this podcast a lot, but never in front of a live audience. So this is a lot different for us. Lizzie is nervous. I don't know why. She is one of the most able, articulate dialecticians in the world that I've ever heard of. I've hung out with some pretty heavies, some heavies, and uh, she's right up there with all the heavies. Uh, and she knows her. She knows her shizit. And uh, today we're just going to. We're just going to riff like we always do. Does anyone listen to our podcast, Art Attack, everybody? Woo! Thank yes! you. And anybody? Well, today we actually have more of a theme, art battles. And there are tons of really iconic artistic rivalries. And so we are going to dissect two of them. And each of us will loosely identify with one artist. And then you guys can applaud for the victor if you want to. You know, you don't have to. No, no big deal. But... <laughs> I think that there's actually a really cool psychological precedent for this discussion of rivalry. It's not just fun because they're frenemies, but if we think about Darwin, survival of the fittest, or even Marx and there's class struggle, or Freud and the psychological impulse to murder your father as I'm staring at my stepfather. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is actually a topic that has a lot of resonance. And the first pair that we're going to talk about is Picasso versus Matisse. And I know it's a big one. So for those of you, just so you have a little visual cue, I'm used to speaking with lots of images behind me, so I'm sorry that this is tiny, but here is Matisse's The Dance, painted in 1909, and it was a preliminary painting for a, another image that he did, also titled The Dance, and that was for a Russian art collector. So it's kind of interesting that this is really a preparatory painting that just looks a little bit more fully realized. And to give a brief amount of context, so we are at the turn of the century, and the Industrial Revolution is totally changing the way that everything in the world is like, most specifically art. And there are the Impressionist painters, who I'm sure you all have heard of Monet, Degas, Renoir. And it's funny, because we think of the Impressionists now as just being so kind of candy and easy to look at, when really, these guys were the first group of renegades. And they were rejected from the academy, and so instead of accepting that no, they ended up hosting their own exhibition. It was the Salon de Refusé, so the Salon of the Refused. And I think that's pretty, pretty badass. It's kind of like the street artists of the 1890s. And after that, then we're in the post-impressionist era, and so people are still really influenced by light and by color and by how seeing the world actually in the world and not just confined to the walls of your studio, how that really affects you. And so I think it's important to situate ourselves historically because both Picasso and Matisse were really influenced by these older guys, especially Seurat, Cezanne, uh, Van Gogh, and Gauguin. Very well spoken. <laughs> what do you have to add to that? <laughs> Look, you know, uh, Talking about Matisse and trying to back Matisse against Picasso is like bringing a knife to a gunfight. You're, you're, you're going to lose. Um, <laughs> you're so sure about that. <laughs> look, I, I love Matisse, but I think Picasso to me, let, let's a little, get a little background on Picasso's story. Uh, Picasso was born in 1881, October 25th, 
and in Milagros in Spain. And Picasso is thought to be a stillborn baby, right? Until his uncle blows cigar smoke in him and he wakes up and becomes Picasso. And by the way, I never knew, I'm a Picasso fanatic, so I know a lot of anecdotal stuff about him. I'll share some of it along the way. Picasso had actually 23 names. Did you know that? I did not. Because his parents were God-fearing people, and so they named him after many saints. Uh, thank God it was only Pablo Picasso, otherwise he would never have been who he is. So Picasso grows up with a father who's a classical painter. And by the time he's nine, he does a pretty good painting, and they see that he has talent. By the time he is 15 or 13, his father says, I can, I'm never going to be able to paint again because what you're doing is so impactful and powerful. You are such an amazing draftsman. He's a prodigy, much like Jean-Dominique Eng, Joachim-Louis David, or uh, Jerome. He's an actual prodigy. But what does he do? He realizes as much as, as great as he is, he wants nothing to do with the classical world, right? So he shuffles off and moves to Paris, and this is where he meets Matisse, his friend, enemy. Introduced by Gertrude Stein, which That's I think right. is pretty cool. And Picasso, I teach, I, I do think Picasso is significant, for sure. It would be really arrogant to say otherwise, but I think that he's significant for Cubism, which was a, an avant-garde movement that really disrupted the spatial plane of how we see the world. Almost like you're taking a photograph and then shattering that photograph into shards and then reimagining it. And so your eye almost has to reconstitute this puzzle, this world. And that, I think, was incredibly significant and influenced other artists. But aside from that movement and aside from Guernica, I don't really think Picasso did a lot to influence a later generation of artists. I think Matisse, although he was subtle, he was a lot less arrogant and he was a lot more gentle of an artist, I think that he actually contributed more in the scheme of things. Weak tea, coffee. Yeah, but which is more palatable? You can drink a lot more tea, only a little bit of coffee, right? No? Um, <laughs> listen, Picasso did have a lot of arrogance. He had a lot of confidence. Makes sense, right? His mom, when he's really little, says, if you're a soldier, you will become a general. If you're a priest, you will become the pope. Picasso later said, instead, I became an artist, and I became Picasso. You want to show Picasso? Oh, yeah. By the way, a show of hands, everybody who knows Picasso, raise your hand. Wow. How many of you know Matisse? Oh, good. I know that this, this is, is a this losing is a very battle, educated but. audience, but but not as many, but not as many people. Uh, you know what? As a painter, and this is just like spoken from my heart. I don't I don't need to win. I already won because I chose Picasso. <laughs> but but really, like to me, the reason I really love Picasso is because Picasso is one of those artists that I always wish that I could be in terms of. When you see Picasso creating, you see those old videos of him painting a bull through glass or a goldfish or flowers or a pigeon or a dove, I just go like, God, man, he really looks like he loves it. Like he does it because he loves it. He really, every artist claims to create in a bubble. I, I, I don't care about what anybody says, you know? I don't pander to anybody. I create in a bubble. Picasso really created in a, bu in a bubble. He really did it because he loved to do it. He had to do it. It was in his DNA. To me, Picasso is the quintessential artist. Like, if you look up artist, you see Picasso. Think about it. Think about the history. Rose period. He was already a classically gifted, tremendous painter. Then all of a sudden, rose period. Then blue period. Neoclassicism. Surrealism. One of the founders, alongside Brock, of Cubism. A phobist, a surrealist. He was not a phobist. He Matisse was a phobist. Right, okay, okay, fair. But Picasso, a ceramicist, a stage designer. I mean, he wore many hats. He did, and he even worked with cardboard. He produced some really tremendously stunning and sophisticated works, and that's... Are you jumping on my side right now? Because I feel like you are. I mean, I think no, the kidding. best <laughs> arguments are when I can concede a point. Okay. So, yes, of course, Picasso is influential, but I think that if we discuss the rivalry then everybody, these good people, 
are going to see that Matisse is really the victor. So a little bit about the two of them. Matisse was 12 years Picasso senior. And the two of them, they really were the definition of frenemy because they had impassioned artistic debates. And one was a lot younger. And they both really did enjoy each other's company. I mean, this is a dynamic that sounds familiar, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Matisse. In 1905, he made the biggest discovery, I think, in modern art, and he discovered African masks. And we historically associate that with Picasso, because in 1907, he created this tremendous painting called Les Damsels d'Avignon of five women in a brothel, a very aggressive image in both scale and content. But what people don't really know is that Picasso only knew about African masks because he saw a painting by Matisse. And Matisse was really the first one to contact this material. And so I think that that represents the origin point for something that was wildly influential to modernism. Also very problematic because the way that all of these Western artists used African masks it's really deforming in its ethnocentrism because they saw the form of the mask itself and they were inspired by that, but they completely let go of the functionality of the work. And so they're only seeing these African objects through the lens of a Western man. And that is really problematic. So in that respect, both of them made that mistake, but Matisse was the first person to recognize the aesthetic power of these objects. Oh. oh, yeah! <laughs> no, that, that was a pause to allow you to feel like you generous. were winning. A generous pause. No, look, uh, I never, I feel like Matisse, to me, it, he's one of those artists where I go to a bathroom and I see a Matisse on the wall and I know I'm going to have a nice bowel movement because he's in, you know what I mean? Um, but that being said, like, I really, uh, I go back to, I, I go back to, to Picasso and how prolific he was. I think pro Picasso was probably one of the most prolific, if not the most prolific artist ever. I, we haven't even touched on his etchings. We haven't even touched on Guernica. What you did say Guernica, 1937, where people familiar with Guernica, like one of the most powerful political masterpieces of all time, maybe one of my favorite paintings of all time. I mean, I'm gonna put it up there with the Last Supper, Raft of Medusa. I mean, it, it was an absolute monolithic uh, achievement. And he did that, obviously, uh, as a response to Franco and the Nazis bombing Guernica, killing innocent women and children. Once again, uh, for the first time, maybe not creating in a bubble, but creating because he really feel like he felt like he had to. He was a socialist. He was really uh, politically motivated. Uh, and and I really respond to that side of him as well. Because I think, in truth, Picasso did create a lot of fluff along the way. You know what I mean? Picasso wasn't always, not everything you do as an artist can be great. That's a fact. You know, unless maybe you're Vermeer and you've got 12 paintings in your, you've got 12 or 15 paintings in your oeuvre. That's because he threw out all the other ones because they were bad. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> hey, Michelangelo did that. Michelangelo burned 80% of his drawings. So, Look, Picasso was in, insanely prolific and really, really, really powerfully poignant. And when I think about, you, you remember those ads back when Apple was first coming out? It was like Einstein, Picasso. Everyone thinks about Picasso, not because he's a bad boy or had his shirt off, but because he really is the emblematic artist of, of our time. I mean, look about, think about like all the lyrics that have Picasso in it, Beastie Boys. I'll make more rhymes than Picasso got paint. I got more rhymes. Is that better? Do you understand? <laughs> I feel like you didn't get the reference until I did the voice. So, um, you know, I, I just feel like he, he is just like, oh, I, I shudder and I, I want to be him. I want to just be able to create. I want to just be able to not pander and, and do as many commissions to say like, oh, I'm going to do this for you because Picasso never really did it for you. He didn't do it for them. He did it for himself. And that's, that's what it means to be an artist. Matisse was sitting in bed with his scissors, and that was amazing, creating collages just on his bed. Just, just well, he really painted with scissors, and it's pretty tremendous because collage is typically seen as a feminized art form 
And so for this old guy to see the power of the aesthetics of collage is really, I think, stunning and under-recognized. And you talk about the diversity within Picasso's oeuvre, rightly. And I think that what makes Matisse part of, of what defines his value is his consistency. That always he's simplifying the form and he's playing with the subtlety and the delicacy of color. And modernism is nothing if not a move toward flatness. And as you can see in this painting that was done very early on in 1909, that's I think pretty uh, tremendous, that he does not paint from foreground to middle ground to background, he really is starting to stack his composition from bottom to top. And Picasso does that too. But if you notice this Picasso, which was done in 1937, so decades after Matisse's painting, that we still see a figure ground relationship. We see a portrait of a woman who occupies space in a way that is traditional to our eye. And Matisse is experimenting, but within his lane. And so I think that that, that shows maybe a dignity of his design and definitely he adheres to a particular aesthetic, which he gave his life, dedicated his life in perfecting. It's a hard sell. I get it. I'm trying. <laughs> no, look, and in the end, there, it is a hard sell. But Picasso himself said, in the end, there was only Matisse. When I read that, I couldn't even believe it. I was like, what are you talking about? He didn't know that I was going to argue for him years later. <laughs> but, um, but he did. I mean, like, he really thought that Matisse was really important. He thought, uh, and I think, I think they inspired each other. And that's what this relationship is about. I think when you look at history and you look at artists, you see pairs. You see Van Gogh, Gauguin, right? You yeah. see uh, Matisse, Picasso. I have a friend, Ruben Hickman, who's probably one of the greatest painters I've ever known, seen in my life. And he was my roommate for years. He made me better. He drove me. I made him better. I drove him. Uh, he started getting better at environments, I knew that I had to step my game up. I started getting better at perspective, he had to step his game up. His game went a lot further than mine right now, but that's okay, I'm trying to step my game up. So I think that Picasso needed Matisse, uh, also because he was his elder, an elder statesman, and uh, I think Matisse needed Picasso because he needed to see what a great artist was like. <laughs> Oh, wait. Did I say that? I thought I was thinking that. I think it wasn't coming out like that. It was weird. They both definitely they encouraged each other. And considering the two pairs that we're going dis to discuss, they are more friend than enemy for sure. Yeah. But I think the rivalry has been increased in the scholarship than it actually was in life. Yeah. And I think just as a footnote, not to say that Picasso is more important, but uh, he is the most stolen artist in the world. I don't know if you know that. Rembrandt is second. He was, was up until the time, and maybe, uh, he was up until the time, the only living artist to ever make it into the Louvre. And when they put him in the Louvre, uh, they said, well, where do you want your painting? He said, I want my painting anywhere but next to a Rembrandt. Because if you're next to a Rembrandt, you will shrink. So don't put me next to a Rembrandt. Just put me in another room, you know what I'm saying? Um, he is also, uh, I think, seven of the 10 most expensive paintings ever sold were Picasso. Uh, he's he's significant beyond significant beyond significant, and there's a lot of other really fun facts about Picasso. Uh, a womanizer, that's fun. A misogynist, a womanizer, <laughs> a a bullfighter. Uh, oh, and this is fan. a little connoisseurship tip for you guys: that whenever there's a bull, that was a codified self-portrait because Picasso had great feelings about his own sexual virility, and so the bull was his little moniker, his, his avatar. So when you which see makes, a bull, you can... <laughs> which makes sense. If you look at, actually, Picasso, some of Picasso's greatest works are his drawings, in my opinion. Like, do you guys know the drawing of Stravinsky? It's oftentimes used in books like uh, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain by Betty Edwards, where you draw Stravinsky upside down because he's like textbook good. So you can always use Picasso's drawings. His line quality in that drawing was very close to a Jean-Dominique Gang uh, drawing. So he really, I just love how good he was at drawing and painting and decided to just go, you know what? 
I did that, done that, I'm going to go move over to this lane. That's very difficult to do. Matisse wasn't as classically trained, uh, but it, it's hard to be at that level, to be Picasso and, and 15 years old and to be that good. It was just crazy. And the two of them, so we'll move on to our postmodern duo, but Matisse and Picasso together, they really forged a modern aesthetic. And they both are incredibly significant. We can vote for Picasso. I was expecting this. But the, no. uh, the de Kooning and Pollock pair, they are the next great foray into academic innovations because, or within the space of painting, because I think the two of them together created a postmodern aesthetic. So it's really exciting to go from one to the other. So do we need a, a round of applause? All right, who thinks Picasso is more important? That's fair. Anyone from Matisse? Thank you. Okay, okay. All right, that's just because I have more friends in here. uh, It's fine. Lizzie's family right there. So uh, just lower their mics next time. She's going to always win. All right, I know. Only with this crowd. Yes. All right, so do you feel... Yeah, I mean, so as we as we move into Pollock, uh, I want to deconstruct Pollock with you guys, and I want to learn and deconstruct Pollock with you as well. I'm so excited. He's one of my darlings, and P- Pollock is difficult, and I've taught Pollock enough times and heard the criticism, and I'm sure a lot of you are feeling this right now. Well, I could do that, and so it isn't art. How many of you have either heard this, felt this, how many of you yeah, have couple, seen the, right? have, how many of you have seen the documentary Who the Fuck is Jackson Pollock? Or Who the Bleep is Jackson Pollock, sorry. <laughs> right. It's it's amazing, right? So it tells it tells a very interesting window into his into his world. How many people have seen Ed Harris play Jackson Pollock? That was incredible. That was the only time I actually liked Pollock was someone playing Jackson Pollock. But Lizzie, go ahead. Challenge accepted. All right. Well, I'm just right? gonna contextualize us a little bit because sure. this history is actually very important. So the first two artists that we discussed are European. And Europe really defined the trends of art up until the end of World War II. And then suddenly there's this incredible and so far irrevocable shift that now the US, we are the tastemakers in art trends. And this starts at the moment of Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning. And there are a couple reasons for this. One, I believe because so many significant European artists because of the war were exiled to the United States. And so now the new generation of painters, they're learning from these European masters. So I think that we had an edge in that respect. Also, after the war, Europe was seen as effeminate and weak. And so America, we come in with these massive paintings and Pollock really adds to this gendered rhetoric but they're aggressive, the marks are really big, they're opaque, they feel decisive and American, and they came at a time where people are craving this type of aesthetic. And we don't want anything that feels delicate. This is the most regressive art to the 1945 landscape of the world. And so now, something like this, which is non objective, which is the correct way of saying abstract, because even though this looks like it doesn't have any kind of reference point in the natural world, everything comes from something. So abstraction is a fallacy, but non-objective is is not. So anyway, Pollock, he completely changes the way that paintings are made. And so did de Kooning, but to a much lesser extent. And Pollock, he just hit the art world by storm. And Life Magazine did a huge expose on him asking, is he the greatest living American artist? And it's funny because a lot of scholars reference that, but they forget that it's a question. Life Magazine isn't saying Pollock is the most important person ever, they're asking. And so at this point, even though he's wildly popular, he's still really kind of a hard figure to understand. And 70 years later, we can echo that criticism back. So I think a lot of people don't quite understand him. And the reason I think he's incredibly significant is because, first of all, his painting was not this rarefied experience of approaching a canvas with a brush. It's a performance. And so this work is an event. It's active. And I'm sure you can recall images uh, or photographs of Pollock painting. 
but he put the unstretched canvas out on the floor. He loaded up whatever tool he was using with both traditional paint and also automotive commercial paint, and he would just fling this paint at the canvas. And there's no sense of hierarchy. Every inch of his works are typically equally activated. And so rather than have a figure in a ground and we know what we're looking at, our eye is completely disoriented. We have no idea what to do with ourselves because this is something that seems like it's coming out of surrealism, of some subconscious unknowable space. And so a critical tension in Pollock's work is between being incredibly intimate and being public and huge and accessible to everybody. And so I think that duality that he's able to embody is really special. And also, I'm a feminist art historian and I like to bring up bodies whenever I can. And there's something to me kind of awesomely ejaculatory about this work. <laughs> I just wanted to say ejaculatory. But it actually makes sense within this narrative because now we're super hyper-masculine and that is what is celebrated in America at the time. And so for him to spill these fluids from some kind of unknown space that we can't, we can't tap into onto a surface, and then he would say that he needed a smoke after his cigarettes, which really perpetuates this, this um, narrative. So I think that there is something to that, that he's trying to assert America as this dominant force. After hearing that, I'm like, wow, that sounds amazing. And then I looked at this. It's and I was like, down. oh, never mind. I guess oh, there that's you go. The point. It's upside down. See, how can I tell if it's upside down? I can tell you how to tell, but you don't okay. want to know. Okay. So, yeah. Um, listen, let me, I'm going to try to break down Pollock so that I could understand this alongside you and, and everybody here. Uh, you have on one side the French school of, do people know Bouguereau and Jerome and Alma Tadino, some of the greatest classical masters of all time. What they were trying to do is really take life and capture life in the most realistic way, in the most photo, before photos, but in a naturalistic, realistic way. You have that on this end of the spectrum. And then you get the impressionists come along and they go, hey, we're, we're painting. This is not trickery. This is not a trompe l'oeil. We're actually laying paint down, making impressions on a canvas to interpret nature, okay? So you start seeing the evolution, and then fast forward, Jackson Pollock. He is so completely disconnected with the work. He's sometimes using brushes, sometimes using rags, hands, whatever, but he's not even saying this is anything. He's in my opinion, the 180 polar opposite of Bouguereau, who I think is on the end of the spectrum. So in that way, I agree with Lizzie. I think she's right. I think that he's significant. I think that when I first started doing the podcast with you, I was like, I hate Jackson Pollock, and I still hate Jackson Pollock, because I could just go, look, it's a Pollock, right? I mean, like, but... At the same time, in the context of art history and in the canon of art history, I find that we had to go there. Someone had to bring us there. Now, now my question is, do I think that's important? Do I think that's significant to me? Not really, because I really love emotional painters. I love artists that make me feel. And I feel like he's kind of the quintessential opposite of that. He doesn't make me feel in that way because he is so disconnected with what's going on out there in the world. And that's where, that's where I stand, which is, by the way, a lot better than I was initially. It is. I'm very impressed with this, with this progress. But it's interesting that you say that he's <laughs> detached. Thanks. Thanks, Lizzie. <laughs> <laughs> because he actually was incredibly emotional, and he's a person who suffered from alcoholism, actually so did de Kooning, but Pollock, he was a more tortured artist, and in 1956, he was driving drunk, and he ended up dying in a car accident. So his career was really cut short, which is unfortunate because we see the evolution of de Kooning's career. He was 92 when he passed away, and Pollock was, I believe, 41. So we don't quite see where he would have taken his art. And you are right when you say that he's detached in the way that he doesn't actually touch the painting. And I actually think that that is a phenomenal innovation because he's taking the ego out of it. 
He's not saying, oh, it's my artistic genius that has to impress the pigment on the canvas in order for it to mean something. He's allowing gravity and chance to help with the design of the composition. And artists have not done that before. And of course, we all can joke, I could do that so it isn't art, but you didn't do it in 1947. You didn't do it when Bougereau was the aesthetic that everybody felt was safe. And so for Pollock to be able to go into this subconscious state, and he was in, in a lot of therapy, and he was a fan of Jung, and so he believed that there was something to this collective unconscious. So he's actually getting beneath the surface and trying to connect to a more intimate place than anybody, especially de Kooning, who is trying, well, I won't say anything negative about de Kooning until you've, you've introduced him, but. De Kooning. De Kooning. Ladies and gentlemen, de Kooning. Wonderful artist. <laughs> Look, I, I, like, I, I like de Kooning. I'm not a huge lover of de Kooning, uh, but I, I like him a lot more than Jackson Pollock. And I think that that is some of what's wrong with the contemporary art world at this time and place uh, is that you can over, uh, you know, think and label uh, an artist to be great. And when you say Bouguereau, it's like not anybody could do what Bouguereau did. Actually, nobody could. Bouguereau was scary good like scary talented and he had a lot and so much training uh it was insane uh and you know what's really weird about i'm just looking i'm just thinking about de Kooning. i saw a de Kooning the other day of a still life that he did when he was 17 years old and i had no idea he could draw that well he was excellent you know what i mean most 17 year old drawings are shitty um, but th seriously, he was really excellent. So I could see when I look at the flesh and I like the connection, they're both abstract expressionists. They're both coming from a school of thought. They're in the same campus. They're just going to different, you know, classes. And for me, I could feel the expressive nature of these figures. And I'm not going to over embellish what I think it is, but to me, it makes me feel something. And I think that's really important. I think art that moves me uh, is, is really important. I feel like there's a lot of de Koonings that really move me and Pollock just feels sterile to me. And when you say, you know, a lot of people do think like, yeah, my kid could do that. You know, who, who the bleep is Jackson Pollock? We're, we're realizing like the, the average response is my kid could do that. But also the average response at Christie's and Sotheby's is $150 million sold. Yeah, but you, you know, know, de Kooning's has sold for more than Pollock. He sold for what, 73 million? Thir uh, 300. 300 million? Yeah. Yeah, three. And, Paul, and I'm pretty sure Pollock has the number five record, but de Kooning has number three. So there is certainly a lot of, of market value to his work. And I think that his <laughs> brushwork is really slashing and it's energized. And this particular one is in his Woman series. And it's almost proto-pop because he's taking an image from a camel cigarette ad and he's incorporating it. He's really dramatically reinventing it. And now this woman seems like a monster with these enlarged eyes. But the reference point is a pop advertising image. And in that way, he's more progressive than Jackson Pollock because he's almost foreshadowing what somebody like Warhol would do in a few years. You know, I was driving over here and I was telling my mom I was talking about Picasso and Lizzie was talking about Matisse and then I was going to take de Kooning and she was going to take Pollock and my mom said, oh, de Kooning, I used to drink with him in New York and I hate him because he mistreated his wife and he was a misogynist prick and I was like, oh, maybe well, I shouldn't so take de Kooning. Well, so was Jackson Pollock. Right, well, I'm just saying maybe I shouldn't take de Kooning. It feels, it feels weird after that conversation with my mom on the way here. That's amazing. And actually, speaking of that, <laughs> so Jackson Pollock was married to an, an incredible artist named Lee Krasner. And Lee Krasner is the one who introduced Pollock to de Kooning. And she was really the spokesperson for her husband's career. And he was having an extramarital affair with this woman. And the woman was in the car with him when he got into the accident and died. And she survived. And guess who she started dating? De Kooning. He was always trying to, to uh, sneak up on Paul <laughs> <laughs> on his little legacy. And actually, this is an anecdote that I just learned. After Jackson Pollock died, de Kooning apparently said, I saw his grave. That's it. Now I'm number one. Oh. So what's interesting to me about that is that 
in that language is the acceptance that he was not number one before. So I think even de Kooning knew. <laughs> when Picasso died, he said, drink, have a drink for me. That was his last words. And do you know his first words, by the way? I just discovered his first words was pencil. <laughs> mine was exit, by the way. Just Mine was exit, really. But his really? was pencil. In Spanish, of course. Lapis, but yes, it was pencil. <laughs> that was his first words. So something really important about the abstract expressionist movement, regardless of the painter that we're highlighting, is spontaneity and the marks that are made that are not confined to the delicacy of a brush or somebody who's an academic painter like Bougereau. And de Kooning does that. He has the aesthetic of that spontaneous gesture. But what's interesting is that this painting took him two years to make. He made 200 preparatory sketches before finally feeling comfortable with the end result. So he's pretending to be spontaneous when actually he is incredibly thoughtful. And that's great, and that's a mark of somebody who cares about what it is that he's doing, but within abstract expressionism, that's not nearly as innovative. And that's actually what the two of them were fighting about, what the rivalry was based on. And Pollock was just upset about two things. Number one, that de Kooning is maintaining this illusion of the, the spontaneity of his marks, and also that de Kooning never can let go of the figure. And even though this figure is abstracted and she has been turned from this commercial advertising image to something that's monstrous and grotesque, we still know what we're looking at. And with the Pollock, the only time we have any kind of reference, which is something that's always bothered me, I wish that Pollock could call all of his paintings untitled because then we have no idea. And instead, he labels them lavender mist. And even though that's a really abstract concept, now I'm looking for a landscape. And I, that was always a problem I had. I wish that he could just completely relinquish control and lean into the subconscious space that he's really tapping into. And then I learned that Krasner was the one who titled his paintings mm -hmm. because she knew that it would be easier to sell. So I really do think that Pollock was a tortured, tumultuous, terrible human being, but that his innovations far surpass in every way de Kooning's. So a round of applause if you believe this lie. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you, round of applause for Pollock. Pollock! And a round of applause for the misogynistic uh, figurative de Kooning. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Okay, guys, uh, we're going to open it up now to questions you guys have about art in general. If you need us to disentangle anything that you feel is knotted out there in the art world, because everything is, and very convoluted and very complex. So, yeah, and you guys, if you have a question, if you don't mind coming to Manny, that's Manny Danger, everybody. Manny yeah, Danger. Manny. <laughs> Also, if you have any questions about street art or graffiti, graffiti or yeah, we're so lucky we art, have classical art, whoever. And right now, you guys have access to one of the most significant contemporary painters who is incredibly well versed. And something that I really appreciate about Justin is that his work has taken so many transmutations. He started out as a graffiti writer in New York. He tagged under just one. Sorry, I blew up your spot. <laughs> and now <laughs> he paints these incredibly remarkable canvases of urban settings and really introducing urban figures who don't normally have a lot of representation in fine art. So Justin navigates this space between the heterodox, unusual margins of the art world, but also is incredibly well-trained, and he's a, he has technical skill that I have not seen rivaled. So I hope that you guys take advantage of him, and you can ask him questions about his work. And you could also take advantage of her, because she is a... You just saw what she was, an able, articulate, dialectician, knowledgeable about art history and the context of art history. She's an expert in contemporary art. That's her training. But she has masters upon masters and actually even has a master's from Christie's, right? I do. Which is pretty freaking in impressive uh, and just probably one of the most uh, 
articulate people in art history that I've ever spoke to. And interesting, too, because usually you go to an art history class. I've been to a million, and I'm, I, I wake up. <laughs> so if you were to pair two women artists during this time, who would you pair? Pair in... Like in you what? did with the Kooning and Pollock. So rivalry. rivalry? Probably Krasner and Elaine de Kooning, Willem de Kooning's wife. They were both artists. Also Frankenthaler. She's the most interesting female figure <laughs> in the abstract expressionists. <laughs> and talk about fluids. I could go on for days. Some of my students are in the, the room and they know. I make you guys look at some really awkward, glorious slides. Well, that is so interesting. Okay, so now that you bring that up, I get to talk a little bit about stains. So typically, an artist will prime a canvas, and then the paint rests on the surface of that canvas. Now, Helen Frankenthaler, she had the idea to soak her canvases. They were unprimed, and when she was a little girl, she loved the aesthetic of taking nail polish and dripping it into a basin of water in her sink. And just the way that the colors, they danced and they bubbled, and so she wanted to recreate that in her canvas work. So she would spill pigments in a way that was similar to Jackson Pollock. However, her works would soak. And her boyfriend was one of the most reputable art critics at the time. And he talked about her work as being really scary because it represented the flows and the fluids of childbirth and menstruation and how gross. And so that's how she was written about. Now, interesting, and of course that is very contextual to the 1950s, which is pre-second wave feminism, the language of feminism doesn't even start until 20 years later in the 1970s. So Frankenthaler, just by virtue of being able to show with these male contemporaries, that was a huge coup. So anyway, there's this guy named Morris Lewis, and he sees Frankenthaler's studio, and he said, that looks really cool, and he does it too. And this same critic, talked about how he was so subtle in his spills. And the language is completely different, even though the technique is the same. So I think that that really tells us a lot of uncomfortable mm -hmm. things about how we consume art, and especially connected to the historical time period. So I would say Frankenthaler, and I don't know whether she had any rivalries. Let's just say that women always support each other, and so there are none. <laughs> but probably, probably Lee Krasner and Helen Frankenthaler. Any other questions from the uh, audience? I mean, you look into the street art world, there's so many people who support each other. Uh, Banksy, Shepard Ferry, you know, Blake Lerat, Banksy. Uh, I would have to say, there, there's so many. I mean, you think I just. people support each other in street art? I think Shepard Ferry and Banksy are the same person in a lot of ways because they support each other's work so intimately. I think that Exit Through the Gift Shop, if you guys have ever seen that documentary, brilliant documentary, and a real mind fuck. I think that was a very strategic opportunity for those two artists to put their minds together and rattle the contemporary art world and also rattle the auction world uh, by elevating each other in a unconscious, conscious way. And so I think like we were enjoying it voyeuristically, but we were also involved in it just by I heard so many people like oh my god did you see that it was real it wasn't real you know what I mean or oh my god I can't believe what's happening now it's not happening now it was a big mind fuck and I think that those two are friends yeah I think that they totally work together I think there's a lot of uh people that you have to you have to uh work with in tandem with somebody in order to better yourself, you know? And I think people also operate in cliques. You see it in film, you know, you see uh, Judd Apatow. Does he have a film without Seth Rogen and James Franco and Michael Cera? Everybody works like that. Everybody has their mafioso crew, right? It doesn't matter what it is. So I think in the art world, there's that same thing. You certainly see it with gallery directors, right? Roger Gassman has his, his crew and, you know, Deech has his crew. Everybody's got their crew. 
Uh, but I think that I would say Banksy and Shepard Ferry are, are good friends and you think they're enemies? Is that what you're saying? No, I just think okay. in general, in the trenches of street art and graffiti, that mm-hmm. there are tons of rivalries. Yeah. And with Banksy and Kid Robbo, and that was a whole thing. I can't remember when that happened, but Banksy tagged this uh, under a bridge. Fred actually knows probably more mm-hmm. about this mm-hmm. than I do, so you can tell me. But tagged under a bridge, and then this, or no, was it Kid Robbo first? Who was first? Banksy tagged over Kid Robbo. Okay, that's important. And there's a term in the street art graffiti world called toy, and it has a dual meaning. One <laughs> is that you're young and you're not really a seasoned artist, and another is tag over your shit. And it is a really big act of disrespect to tag over somebody's stuff, and it happens all the time. Yep. When you guys are walking to your cars in Echo Park, you'll see a mural, and then maybe you'll see a tag over it. So to me, that's a rivalry. It's a microaggressive rivalry. Not everything is quite as dramatic as the, the uh, Kid Robbo. And so that situation, it became a conversation, a back and forth. So Kid Robbo did the first one, then Banksy tagged over it, then Kid Robbo tagged over that. And he said something, he put um, F-U, some introduction of the F word. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't. All right. Well, it was it was like sharks and jets. So I think that it's still. <laughs> that's my rarefied, precious Sondheim reference. So I'm clearly not of this world. So I just enjoy it. I like uh, being in it while I can. So I think that there's a lot of rivalry. But maybe when you get to the level of a Shepherd Ferry or a Banksy, then you're solid enough in your own reputation that you don't need to to pick these aggressive fights with other people. Yeah, I mean, I think that we see a lot of studio mates. You know, Van Gogh and Gauguin were kind of friends but enemies. You know what I mean? Van Gogh loved Gauguin, and Gauguin was kind of mean to him and kicked his ass on one occasion, you know? And and in the end, I think, you know, Van Gogh was a tremendous artist, uh, but he really looked up to Gauguin. I think historically we see that. We see that a lot. And you certainly saw that a lot with the Impressionists, too. Pissarro was the ringleader, the intellectual Jewish nucleus of the crew. And then you had everybody else. Degas, the incredible draftsman, wonderful compositionalist who was the student of Jacques-Louis David and who was actually the student of... of, um, I mean, he was the student of Aang and who was the student of David. And so... um, you, you get that a lot. Did we answer your question? Yeah, I have one more okay. addition to it, though. So I think I've also heard that these guys hate each other, Jeff Koons and Damian Hurst. And maybe that's a historical fight. And so right now, that's why That's a fight would they... to, to raise the bid at auction is what that is. Possibly, but, <laughs> but I have heard that they really don't like each other. So I think sense. it still exists a lot. I see it all the time. Yeah, it's theater. Any other questions? Yeah. Makes sense. Tom Ford's Iconoclast about uh, Jeff Koons' uh, enemies. Robert Redford and Paul Newman developed that series called Iconoclast. Uh-huh, yeah, and on Tom, Sundance. Tom Ford and Jeff Koons were paired up. Mm. You, should, you should YouTube it. It's one of the most brilliant, I would say antagonistic, <laughs> but also Jeff Koons is trying to absorb this animosity that he feels from Tom Ford. Tom Ford despises him. He's there to interview him. He doesn't believe him. He doesn't believe that he's an artist. Jeff Koons came up for, as a stockbroker or something in the world, and he, he just thinks he's a fake. Wow. And Tom Ford is all about fashion and this superfluous art world, but he's also a very authentic guy. He's made movies, films, exquisitely done. Hmm. So there's this genre between them that is not is maybe misunderstood hmm. the viewer is left with a lot of questions in other words and Thank it's you. a very interesting i'm gonna watch that yeah i have more of a, a comment just to back to matisse and picasso and the reason that i like Matisse matisse more is that we went to that uh, matisse's chapel in the south of france and I start crying just thinking about it. And Picasso never made me cry. <laughs> he never made me cry either. He made me weep, which is a much more intense version of crying. So I could relate to that, but in a deeper way. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I, I, I understand that. Uh, I 
when I went to the Picasso Museum in Barcelona, I was blown away because that was his early work. And like I said, I, f I feel like there was a lot of gratuitous work on Picasso's road to being the artist that he was. He made a lot of crap. You know, like, just because he's Picasso doesn't mean that everything you create is great. Uh, I certainly don't feel like everything I create is great. And, you know, I, I feel like that's also, it's so ubiquitous in the world, that art, that that's a problem. Um, and it's also you're bringing your own personal experience. I could see why Matisse is, like you said, I think that was a very good choice of word for Matisse, is delicate. He's got a delicate feminine energy, and he was a delicate man. And Picasso was a bad boy. He was a playboy. So you, you feel that more in his work. Um, I, could, I could see where you're coming from. And I never wept when I saw Picasso, by the way. I was just saying that. <laughs> Nick, yes, Nick, yes, please. One of the questions I have, um, I love your podcast, and you talk about the artist and the theory and the philosophies that go into their work. But one thing we don't ever he hear too much about in the art world are the people who shape the art world, like a Peggy Guggenheim or a Gertrude Stein. <laughs> Can you speak to the in a general sense, the importance of those people who kind of find themselves at the top and really shape what the avant-garde is? Uh, I could start. <laughs> it's, it's a very mysterious world. And uh, if you look at the big players at the top of the game, uh, Jose Magrabi, Gagosian, Brode, you know, those, if you're talking about that world, right? You're talking about the, the actual, like, the big, big, high-level shit. That... That world is, is a mystery. And I think it's emblematic when you see a Gagosian who won't be interviewed. He won't, be, he won't do TV. He won't do radio. You're just not going to catch him talking about art. Why is that? Because he could buy a painting for $2 million and flip it the next day for $70 million. Where's the money going? Who's the money going to? Where's the money coming from? I think if we knew that, we would be, it would be alarming and we would start to question it. You're talking about a world that's unregulated. You can't regulate it. How can you regulate that world? This painting is this gigantic, made by this artist from this century, and this painting is this, this big, you know, made by somebody from today. It's a very weird thing to regulate. And because of that, there's so many loopholes in the system. So uh, I think there's two different questions that you really ask, because you asked Gertrude, you said Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein was a patron, and we all need patrons. Uh, unfortunately, the patrons these days have become, you know, the big deal patrons are the uber, uber, uber rich. Um, and then they're the board members, and then they decide what's acquired by the museums. So I think the patrons... And the museums can't even afford the shit that the uber rich can afford, by the way. Right, so that's why they have to pander to that. And I'll just say really quickly, and then we'll yeah. go back to you and Gertrude Stein. When uh, Justin mentioned that I studied at Christie's and I thought that I wanted to be in the auction world and that I was going to be in a post-war contemporary specialist and then I saw how far away that world is from the actual art. And it's really sad because when a Christie's will have a gallery before a sale, typically you never see those works again because they're going to go to a private collection and maybe there's going to be a special exhibition like the Jasper Johns at the Broad that culled all sorts of works from private collections, but that's rare. You are not going to be able to go to a LACMA and see your old friends when you are encountering these works at Christie's, and it just made me so sad. And seeing the conspicuous consumption, it felt gross. It felt like people were more interested in the provenance or the auction records than they ever were in the authenticity of the work that I thought, I'm just going to pursue a career where I'm never going to make money, but I get to decide what work I think is important. And so these tastemakers, to go back to your question, Nick, they I really think are the people with money, with agendas. There's always sure. an agenda. Always. It's and like so politics. It's a, it's a revolving door. The same people that are working at Monsanto are working in the government the next week. It's just how it goes. Um, because there's at the end of the day, art is commerce. So I will... Uh, I always say this to people. I would buy art because you love it. Don't worry about the blue chip side of it. It's, it, it sure, it can be an investment, but you don't know what you're going to get on a return. You know, they're making sure that the prices are jacked up all the time because they have, they have so much in the game. They got so much skin in the game that they have to make sure that if, if Jeff Coombs is selling at 70 million, that the next one's selling at 71 and 80 and 90 and 100 because they all have skin in the game. So it's, it's, it's almost an impossible 
story and narrative to to deconstruct and untangle because it's too complicated. There's too many there's too many people double dipping. There's too many art dealers who are also art advisors who then have their best friend who's a gallerist who's saying, you got to buy this artist. I'm telling you, he's the next shit. You know, and the next thing you know, the thing, the guy that you thought was the next thing, they're just going to do a pump and dump, just like the stock market. Build them up, sell them at auction, dump them. Then, hey, well, I, just, I just invested X amount in that artist. What happened? Yeah, we didn't think he was what we thought he was, but I got another guy for you. You know what I mean? And just like, so... If I were to impart any of my personal advice, is, is you, have to, you have to make art that you love. I mean, you have to buy art that you love, and you have to support artists that you love and that are important. And don't allow any of these people that are experts to give you advice, because they don't know shit. Is that fair to say? <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Sarah? Please walk to the microphone. Please walk to the microphone. Thank you so much. Is that far enough? Oh. A couple more questions, and we're going to wrap it up. Isn't my friend really pretty, by the way? Isn't she gorgeous? Manny um, is stunning. Oh, not Lizzie is. Stunning. Okay, I'm oh, sorry. Thank you, friend. Um, I actually, now that we just uh, broached the whole Christie's topic, I actually have a two-part question. The first original question I was going to ask was: Art 21 on PBS is actually like one of my favorite programs of all time. So I was just curious who you guys thought was, were some like really great 21st century artists. Um, who are your favorites? And then the second question I have is, um, so like I do, th I, I really love art, but I think like one of the issues that I have with it is really how capitalistic and inaccessible it can be. I mean, you go to like Europe or Scandinavia, everything is commissioned by the government there and it's open to the public. Here it's like, we have free Museum Tuesdays because not everyone can access $50 LACMA mm -hmm. exhibits. So um, I'm just wondering if you guys think that, like, even, even with artists, for example, like one of my favorite artists is Jenny Holzer, and she's like a rich white girl from Jersey. And she's talking about a lot of the same, like, socioeconomic and sociopolitical problems that's say like Patrick Martinez is talking about, but you see him in smaller galleries in like Culver City and she's at the Broad. So it's like, do you, do you think that sort of the elitism that nat is naturally inherent in the art world kind of prevents us from not only finding out about new great upcoming artists, but also is preventing people from like breaking into the art world that really deserve those spaces more than like a Jenny Holzer, even though, like I said, she is one of my favorites. So, well, <laughs> excuse if me. I, if I could, I'm going to try to answer because you asked a lot That's of questions. That's a lot. That wasn't I know. Two, that that wasn't two, that was a lot. That wasn't two <laughs> questions. Those were that was like 200 several questions. nuanced <laughs> questions. So, I'm going to say a couple things and I'll hand it over to you. And obviously, we have to wrap it up pretty soon. But I'll say that in, in life and in art, your net, there's a saying your network is your net worth. Right? That, that's what I would say about art. It's, who, it's, it's not how good you are, but it's, it's mostly about who you know. Um, they're definitely, you know, I was talking to my, one of my best friends about this the other day. Like, why does this person make it, but this person doesn't? Why does this person get into Jansen and Gardner, which are the art history books that we all get at school, but then these people don't? It has a lot to do with who you know and what you've done along the way, or it's a timely thing, you know? Uh, so it's so nuanced and complicated. Uh, and in terms of artists that I think that I love, I really love uh, a lot of illustrators. You remember, d let's not look down on illustrators as fine artists because every fine artist was an illustrator. Michelangelo illustrated the Sistine Chapel for Pope Julius II. Rembrandt illustrated Nightwatch. It was just commissioned to do, you know, work for. But I would say that you, you once again, going back to, you have to really support art that you feel is important. And some contemporary artists that I really admire, I love 
political activists, artists who use their platform as a way to express their politics. So Ai Weiwei would be the greatest example of that. I love Kara Walker. I think a lot of exciting things are coming out of East Asia, and especially in photography. I think photography is really dynamic and often overlooked, and certainly within street art. And there are definitely a lot of people who are doing innovative, disruptive things, especially within the space of activism. So that's really where I go, and I think the other part of your question, does our oversaturation in museum shows and galleries with the Ai Weiwei's, with the Jenny Holzer, oh, Barbara Kruger too, is one of my favorites. But does that blind us to other things going on? Absolutely, there's only so much time in the day. How do we see? It's just this oversaturation of visual information and a way around that, I'm not sure. I know that Shepherd Ferry has a gallery right in Los Feliz, isn't it? Uh, Echo Park. Oh, Echo Park, great, where we are. And he will showcase other contemporary artists that he admires. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a nice blending of somebody who's reputable, who's earned his reputation, but also is encouraging other artists to have these opportunities. So that's really the only way that I've been able to find that intersection between what's really happening right now and what is safe to enjoy. Well, one more question and then that's all folks. Last question, anybody? Yes, sir. I don't want to leave you hanging. You look stunning as well, Justin. <laughs> Thank you so. so much. I was waiting for you to say that. Yes. Thank you. Um, I just want to know what drives you to do, and Lizzie, you can ask this, answer this question too. What drives you to do what you do? Like, you know, do you have those moments? It's like, oh, you know, I don't want to paint anything right now. Like, you know, like what moves you? Yeah, you ask my wife. I have those moments all the time. Uh, I was just saying today. Uh, Picasso said, <laughs> how do you know you're inspired unless you're already painting? He also said, inspiration exists, but it has to find you working. I lose inspiration all the time. Uh, I going back to Picasso again, he, you could see the joy that he always had because he was just making art. And a lot of times, you know, when I'm doing commissions, maybe I don't want to do that. Maybe I don't want to finish that. If I'm doing an advertising campaign, I painted uh, a painting for Callaway where I did Phil Mickelson, a golfer. If you know my catalog and my oeuvre of my work, I don't do a lot of white people. And now that I'm doing white people, uh, you know, it's, it's a different thing. But I'm not, uh, it's just, I'm not uh, always inspired. And I have to push through the pain of that because... It's uncomfortable, and you just have to work through it. Uh, and I'm not as lucky as Picasso was, who could just kind of, you know, Picasso was, when he died in 1973, he was worth $500 million. So he can do whatever the fuck he wanted to do, you know what I mean? He just had extra. So you just keep doing it, and I just like, I feel like it always goes back to what Michelangelo said when he was 81. He said, I'm just beginning to learn how to draw. Like, I'm a student, and I just want to get better, and I just want to create. I don't really care if I get into museums. I had a show at LACMA, you know, and now I kind of just do my own shows. I've circumvented the preconceived notions of what this art world is, and I'm deconstructing it in my own way by saying, I don't really need to get into it. I could just do things in my own, my, create my own system. Uh, and I have to just push through the pain of it of sometimes creating and at the same time I'm really fucking lucky because you know I get to paint for a living and I'm just I just want to learn get better and grow and because I know that I was telling I was talking to my friend Chris in the back earlier about this the ceiling is so far away from me if I look at a sergeant and I look at a Zorn or I look at a Rodin sculpture every time I look at another art I've seen a Rockwell in person that made me weep that you can talk about making you weep I'm like, how can you be that good? That's just horrible. Like, I don't feel good right now. I, I have to quit. And I, but I feel like that a lot. Like, I look at a boogero, and I'm like, how did he do that? Like, I don't even, I'm a painter, and I don't even understand it. It's so crazy to see some of these artists, a Dean Cornwell, a Lion Decker. Some of the early American illustrators were so good. It's like makes my skin crawl. 
But it also makes me inspired to know that, like, I got, I got so far to go, and I'm just beginning to understand certain things. And when you get certain things, I'm just starting to understand. I'm getting really good at value and line. But then there's color. You can get lost in a lifetime of color. Vuillard and Bonard got lost in the lifetime of color. There's an artist right now named Dan McCaw, who's one of the most important artists alive. He's lost in color. He's a really goddamn good painter who taught his student, Vern Wilson, who taught his student, Steve Houston, who taught my best friend, Ruben, and me. So, you know, like there's a lineage and a, and a history in the canon of this whole thing we call art that's so complicated and beautiful that I just can't even believe I'm lucky enough to be a painter at this time. Thank you. Well, those who can't do teach, so I'll, I'll let him. <laughs> Thank you guys so Thank much you. for coming out. If you, if, you, um, if you don't listen to Art Attack, there's a good reason why, because now you can listen to yourselves. So thank you for uh, supporting. And uh, to my wife and my child in the back, thank you guys for showing up every day. And thank Lizzie, because she's a genius. And thanks to Manny, because of his tight pants. And to DJ Lido, DJ Lido and to in the Tommy back for John, DJing. Our sponsor. <laughs> Speaking of Manny's tight pants. And of course, number one thanks to Pollen right here. This is an amazing restaurant. If you guys are lucky enough to come here, uh, this is farm-to-table food. I come here every day because it's right down the block. It's really good, really, really high-quality food. Thank you, Rome, for doing everything on Facebook. And thank you guys so much. We hope that we will get to do these more often. So we'd love to see you. Yeah. Thank you for your feedback. Thank you for your support. Thank you. Thank you.